So most people who want to pursue the Lord throughout their life eventually struggle with asking that little question, how, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Or how do I know that I can finish this life as a Christian? And that struggle relates to our understanding of the Christian identity, what it means to be a Christian. And sometimes I think we tend to think that being a Christian is something that rests on our decision to be so. We think that placing ourselves into the Christian camp, the Christian community, determines that we're Christians. And that's the definitive thing involved. In reality, though... God creates and establishes our identity as Christians. And 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9, helps us see just that. First, though, we need to discuss what we're doing. I I could almost swear that Reverend Pearson stole my notes this morning, because the two questions I have are, what are we doing, and... Why are we doing it? But I'm doing this at the outset of a series. So we're starting 1 Corinthians. And so we need to ask, what is this letter and why should we study it? This this letter is Paul's pastoral address to a people struggling. And it is that. They are a people struggling to stay afloat in doctrine and practice. We read in Acts 18 that Paul came to the city of Corinth And that happened around 50 A.D. after he left Athens. Corinth was a hub of commerce and politics. And Paul ministered there for about 18 months, composing, uh, I mean, sorry, planting a church composed of Jew and Gentile. And here's the thing. Not long after Paul left, trouble started to stir in this city. He likely wrote this letter from Ephesus And his stay there is recorded by the end of the same chapter where he was planting this church. Paul Paul corresponded most of all with this church out of any church to which he wrote. And so we learn here to keep us in perspective of of all the things going on in the New Testament. So we learn from 1 Corinthians 5.9, which says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So we learn from that, that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote, that Paul ever wrote to this church. 1 Corinthians is the first letter Paul wrote to that church that God wanted us to have in our Bibles. But Paul previously addressed them about some of the same issues we find here. Paul wrote this book about 55 AD from Ephesus again. And Paul's main purpose throughout this letter was to redirect this church to live in light of realities that Christ brought about by his gospel work for and in them. And we need this book, we personally need this book because we too are a church full of Christians endeavoring to pursue the Lord as we struggle with various pastoral issues. We need help 
to align our lives with gospel truths. Even if we may not wrestle with exactly the same issues, although some of them are the same, this book still gives us a pattern of submitting to Scripture. And in this way, this book was inspired not only for first century Christians, but also for us. It is packed full of pastoral difficulties and theological landmines. And if you know this book at all, you know that there are some doozies. And we get to, we get to spend time thinking through how we see Christ better through these things. Isn't that wonderful though, that we have this book of Bible, this book of the Bible that is hard at times and pushes us to think deeply about our majestic God. It's a privilege. It's a wonderful thing to deal with some of these hard texts. But as we narrow down to what we're doing tonight, in verses 1 to 9, Paul greeted his readers and offered initial thanks for them. These verses describe foundational realities about it, what, about what it means to be a Christian and how God guarantees our blessings and privileges for eternity. And so the main point, main point is that God's work establishes Christian identity. God's work establishes Christian identity. And we're going to think about this in three points. The call, the commission, and the confirmation. So first, the call. So let me give you a a brief outline here. In verses 1 to 3, Paul greeted the Corinthian church. And then in verses 4 to 9, he explained the reasons why he thanked God for them. Now, this whole passage, verses 1 to 9, begins and ends on the same note. So, verse 1, if you turn your, keep, keep your Bible open tonight, because we're gonna look at this text, I hope, thoroughly. So, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Paul, Paul regularly introduced himself as the first thing, in the, and in this letter, a guy named Sosthenes was with him. Now, perhaps you noticed, just to give you some background on this, so perhaps you noticed that Sosthenes appeared in Acts 18, where he was a ruler in the synagogue. Uh, now, Sosthenes apparently became a Christian after that event and was then a brother laboring with Paul. Now, in this instance, in this particular letter, it's perhaps not that crucial that Paul identified himself as an apostle. Since, I mean, that's sort of a typical feature of his letters. But it is crucial to see that he specified that he became an apostle because God, in his effectual will, called him to that. And in verse 2... He re-emphasized that theme of call to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In verse 9, 
if you jump all the way down to the end, rounds out this theme of call. Faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul repeated that God called these believers to be Christians. And now we need to think, don't we, about what Paul meant by calling. We, so we might tend to think, we could, but it'd be wrong. We might tend to think that calling is like when we, when we shout for our pets, right? So, so Sarah and I used to have, uh, this bunny named Oreo. Um, I know. And so here's the thing, like, I could call his name over and over, and even if this guy is looking right at me, nine times out of ten, he's just gonna stay sitting right there. My call to that pet, though, is nothing like God's call. God's call is more like those lamps that turn on automatically when you clap. They have to. God's command must create its intended result. Paul actually made this exact point in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, if you're a Christian, God didn't bring you to faith by trying really hard to persuade you. God brought you to faith in the same way that He created light. He commanded that light existed, and it happened. No resistance, no objections. God spoke and light came into existence. When God called you to faith according to His effectual will, you believed. No resistance. Your objections melted. Your doubt disintegrated. You trusted Christ. God summoned you to believe, and the light of faith thundered through the darkness of your heart. That's how we become Christians. Scripture explicitly, even even within this chapter that we're thinking about tonight, Scripture explicitly links God's act of calling to our doctrine of election. If you jump down briefly to verses 26 and 27. For consider, look at it, your calling... Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then here we have it. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's call is about our inability to believe. So God chose those whom he would save and called them. God's call upon us, as we see in verse 2, results in our calling upon Christ. 
Paul here cited, this is good, uh, this is good, this is a good lead-in for next Sunday morning where we're studying the last half of Joel 2. So Paul cited here in these verses, Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he applied that verse to Jesus Christ, the name of God. This Jesus Christ is both their Lord and ours, meaning the universal Lord, the one true God. Verse 3 shows Jesus Christ and God the Father are again, as we saw in First and Second Thessalonians, both the Father and the Son are the unified source of grace and peace. And we see here then to pull this together, a strong presentation, Christ as divine, the second person of the Trinity. But to close this point, the call is that God effectively brings his chosen people to faith. God effectively brings his chosen people to faith. And that brings us to our second point, the commission. And so we saw that God creates Christians by calling them to faith in in a way that effectively convinces sinners to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so within the big idea that we're considering here of Christian identity, we, we possess that identity, identity because God summons His elect to faith. And now we need to think about another aspect of God's call. So what we've considered so far, we call it effectual calling. God calls and it happens. And that relates to how we become Christians. And the thing about this is that all Christians experience that particular act of God with the same results. Coming to faith. That's the same. Another aspect of God's calling, though, has varying results. And that is God's particular calling upon our individual lives. And I think this is something really important for people to think about. So we see sort of the starting point for this in our text that that Paul was called to be an apostle. God set him apart for a foundational role of authority in the church. That was God's special call to the task that he had for Paul. Galatians 1.15 tells us that God set Paul apart for that task before he was even born. And that was God's specific call for Paul. And we see that there's also specific calling to all believers. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we are supposed to be a sanctified people, saints. Saint, okay, here's the thing. Sanctification, when we throw out some of these big theological words, that, that term usually refers to ongoing growth in holiness, right? So our development in the Christian life. But sometimes, 
just to keep us on our toes. The Bible uses this term in other ways. So here we are sanctified in Christ in the sense that we are, we're set apart for special use. So, uh, in our fridge, maybe it's the same in yours, the, the shelf on the door is designated for milk. And I get so bothered. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't get bothered if it's, but it should go there. That shelf is marked for that purpose of holding milk. It's set apart for that use. That's where the milk goes. It is sanctified for that role. The shelf on the door. Now, likewise, here we go. So a bit more biblical than that. In the Old Testament, God set apart specific utensils, right, for particular uses in temple worship. They had particular tools and items that were meant to be used for particular things, and they had to use those. They couldn't just use any utensil. They had to use those because those were the ones set apart for that use. And then we come to the New Testament, and in this sense, God no longer sanctifies utensils and temple worship for holy use, but He sets apart, He marks out, He sanctifies people for special purposes. Now, okay, although the broad category in which we all live is God's holy purposes, more specifically, God puts you to use in a variety of jobs and callings. And this is what I want to drill down on it for just a minute. Okay, so whether you work in finance or as a tradesman or you're a student or a homemaker, God called you to that role as his holy instrument. Sit on that for a second. So what this means is, if God called you to whatever role you currently have, it means that there are no, there are zero menial callings. So, whether you run a company, or you run a till, or you run a home, God has given you that task. So here's, I, 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 okay, fair warning, right? So when you're speaking to me, keep this in mind. I don't like it when people say something like, I'm just a whatever you do. You, you don't get to say that. You are not just anything if you are a Christian. You, you are, you are God's sanctified instrument in business, trade, study, mothering. So don't, please, Christians, do not denigrate your calling by thinking lowly of it. 
let me put it this way. God thinks it is a worthy task. Or he wouldn't have given it to you. This is what we call our doctrine of vocation. That God has given us callings in life. That all tasks God gives us to do are important. And God appointed. And the difficult part is that this addresses us in our contentment. So perhaps you feel, I know, I know that some of this is raw. Okay, so I'm not trying to be insensitive, but we have to talk about this. Perhaps you feel disappointed in your job or the fact that you are a student and you long for a job or disappointed in the fact that you are a stay-at-home parent or spouse. Okay, so maybe you are single and struggling with not knowing if you will get married. Perhaps you are married and feel your spouse is not, is not as wonderful as you once imagined they would be. Perhaps you are in a wonderful marriage and longing for children and not knowing if they will come. And the doctrine of vocation reminds us so crucially that God called us to this season, whatever it may include. We, we need to be satisfied that God calls us to our jobs, to the things we can accomplish. He calls us to the things we can accomplish in our singleness. And he has called us to the marriage vows we have made, no matter how we might feel. In a given moment. And what I don't mean here. What I don't mean here is. Satisfaction in settling. For bad things. That's not what I mean. It is not. It is satisfaction in knowing that God has good purposes. In calling you. To your present role. It is not that you cannot seek a new job or seek to finish school. It's not that you can't pray for marriage or for a better marriage or for children. It is satisfaction. Listen, listen, please. This satisfaction that we need to know is satisfaction in knowing that your role, whatever it might be, is important. And it is good. Because God gave it to you and called you to it. And so, we should be, if this applies, we should be convicted if we think lowly of our personal callings. But, and here's, here's the thing, the more important aspect of this. We should be uplifted to know that whatever you do, It is important to God. That should fill us with hope and diligence every task we have. The commission 
is that God calls us for his purposes and glory in this world, in our various roles that we are given. And that brings us to our third and final point, the confirmation. So we considered first that God creates Christians by calling them in a way that convinces sinners to trust in Jesus. Okay, and then we saw that our specific tasks are part of God's calling, which furthers the Christian identity as defined. Our identity as Christians is defined by God's call. Christians, though, often struggle in maintaining their Christian identity. We tend to have these personal crises of doubt whether we truly possess this identity or, or fear about how we might maintain it. And so we have to ask, what gives us confidence about staying in the faith? So we're going to turn and read verses 4 to 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, listen, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so, uh, my favorite New Testament scholar has indicated uh, a really interesting background to this text. My favorite New Testament scholar is Dr. Bittner, by the way, for multiple reasons. Uh, in Corinth, patrons or benefactors often secured privileges for their communities, wherever those communities might be or whatever group it might compose. So Paul seemed to be drawing on that principle in explaining the work of Jesus for the community, the community of the church. He, his finished work has secured gospel privileges by grace for this community. So verse nine tells us, right? We see here that, that Christians have joined the community, the fellowship under the patron, Jesus Christ. Okay, and that patron, that, that Jesus Christ becoming our benefactor, that patron relationship begins with God's saving actions in Christ. And, and those initial gifts and privileges of the gospel secured by Christ's life, death, and resurrection are are then confirmed, verse 6, then confirmed through Paul's preaching about Christ, the testimony. We we see that in verses 4 to 6, right? I give so if we if we're looking at this language of gift and confirmation, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you. In Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among so gift, patrons give gifts and confirm them. And so like this patron 
metaphor, Christians are given a gift that is confirmed in the preaching of the gospel. So patronage, let's just hash that out, give it a little more texture. Patronage composed official relationships like those we discuss often in covenant theology. Where So in covenant theology, God pledges gospel benefits to his people in a legally binding way. He goes on record where he can't break his promises to, to give those benefits to people. And we, we need now to be really clear about what the gift is that's given and confirmed. That's where we're going. So this gift, verse 4 in our text tonight, is God's grace to us in Christ. So it's the grace given in Christ Jesus. It is further though, verse 5, grace that enriches us as it is spoken, so quote, in all speech, and as it is understood and all knowledge. And then verse 6 clarifies that this gift involves the testimony about Christ, the proclamation of the gospel message, which is confirmed in the church as we announce the gospel. So here's the thing. So the fact that Paul spoke about God as a patron who delivered the gospel as a gift, as a gift given and confirmed to those who belong to Christ, that may not surprise you. That probably sounds pretty standard. But you may still be wondering how this helps you as you wrestle in feeling secure as a Christian. After all, most of us know that the gospel is God's gift of grace to us in Christ. And we find help drawing that connection in verses 7 and 8. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul knew, I mean, it's clear here, right? That Paul knew that Christians wrestle, struggle in the Christian life. This whole letter is largely about correcting moral and doctrinal failures in the church. He knew that it is not a simple thing. Well, it's not an easy thing to pursue the Lord, much more to do it well, even more to do it with confidence. And because he knew it is so easy to falter in faith, he began this letter asserting the foundations for Christian confidence. He he wanted these believers and you To know that God has provided all that they, we, need as we wait for Christ's return. We should stand firm in faith and have all the fuel we need for the Christian life because Jesus Christ sustains His people. Now, our patron Christ has given us the gift we see there, right, of being called guiltless. Verse 8. Now, 
Your default may be to think that this refers to moral ability. And, and maybe you are concerned that you're not able to carry on guiltless in your life and conduct. And here's the thing. Although Paul does have many, many things to say about sanctification, our growth in godliness... In this letter, throughout this letter, this instance is not about that. This, this refers to our doctrine of justification. God declares, says, that you are righteous in Jesus Christ. God grants to you the status, the label, the legal designation of righteous. He gives that to you because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life in fulfilling the law and died to pay the penalty for your sin. And both His perfection and His atonement are credited to you when you take hold of Him by faith. Paul said that Jesus Christ, here, here we go, Jesus Christ sustains your justified status. He sustains that you are guiltless in the sight of God. Your patron grants that gift to you by grace and confirms that gift for you until he returns. Your justification, listen, like if you've sort of drifted off tune back. Your justification cannot be undone. It does not come in phases. It does not come in parts. End of story. I don't care who tells you otherwise. That's the way it is. There is no future. There is no second bit of justification. God has said you are righteous if you are in Jesus Christ. There will be a final judgment, but for Christians, it is if you walk into that situation with your exam grade already assigned, your perfect grade, A star, for the day of the Lord, when God returns to judge the world, is given here and now to those who believe the gospel. It is an irrevocable immutable status. Your righteous status is as established and firm as Christ's own status as righteous. The righteous one. God has promised that. Made Himself liable to fulfill that by making a covenant with those who trust in Jesus Christ. We are infinitely sinful. We deserve condemnation. We know that. But if you believe in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Citizens have rights and privileges. You are a citizen of heaven with the right, Scripture says, to be called a child of God in possession of eternal life. The confirmation 
is that God has justified you in Christ. And we must know then that no one can bring a charge against God's elect. We should then be renewed and enthused in our eternal security to go into the world in hope to answer God's callings for our life. Let us, as we, as we finish our reflections here, let us draw that, let that message, God has called us and granted us this gift and has called us into our roles. Let that pull our heads up above the mire of everything around you, of everything you endure in this world. Let that lift up your head. Not just to your calling, not even to your calling, but to the God who has called. Let us see Him and fix our sights upon Him. Let's pray.